Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. As we look through the Catechism, we know that there is one God. That's what the Catechism is teaching us in terms of its summation of the Word of God. We're called to worship Him alone, and we're called to worship Him as His redeemed on His terms, that we should see worship as a privilege, that we are coming into the presence of a holy God by His invitation. Now as we go on, we move from this notion of idolatry and, and go through what it means to worship God. Now we wrestle with what does it mean to be name-bearers of the Most High, because that's really where the Apostle Paul is situating us as being those who bear the name of the Most High God. So what does it really mean to bear the name of the Lord? And so as we look at this, we'll see first being God's people, where we're uh, once again refreshed in knowing who we are, and secondly, living as God's people with that exhortation and, and reminder. And so let's begin with being God's people. Well, as the Catechism takes uh, basically the ethical lists of the Apostle Paul, meaning uh, the things we're called to bring forth out of gratitude. And so as the Catechism basically takes those lists from the New Testament, uh, takes the Old Testament case law, and boils it down for us, we're being instructed how we live. The first thing we're called to, to mind in terms of keeping the third commandment uh, and honoring the name of God, that we're not to blaspheme. It's basically uh, a very general way of speaking irreverently about God. So the catechism is just starting with a reminder in terms of our following this commandment that we follow this commandment in a very broad sense, that, that we can, in many ways, irreverently um, speak ill of God without even truly intending to. And so it's something to be conscious of. Secondly, the misuse of the name of God. Now I grant, if you look at the Jewish tradition, uh, they wouldn't even say the name Yahweh, because they, they said it was dangerous and treacherous to say the Lord's name. I think that becomes somewhat dangerous because when Moses says, well, who shall I say sent me? There the Lord gives his names. I am Yahweh. And so the, the Lord wants us to, to call upon him by his name and, and to know his name. But where we can go to the other extreme where the Jews would say, well, don't ever say the name of God and there's almost a superstition. We can go to the extreme where this name almost becomes just commonplace in our language, that, that we don't really think about using the name of God in a way that is reverent and respectful and honorable unto him. And so the catechism is sort of inviting us to sort of walk between the, these extremes. On the one hand, saying, well, I don't ever want to say the name of God, reveals himself to us as a covenant God. We can call upon him. But on the other side, we don't want to make the name of God so common uh, that God is no longer holy 
worthy of worship and, and truly a God of all that, that we are to marvel at it and praise him for who he is. Now, the catechism goes on uh, to cursing. It's basically using the name of God in, in a superstitious sense uh, of trying to uh, manipulate God to bring a curse on someone. So it sort of goes to uh, sort of just like witchcraft and reducing God down to another being to serve our purpose and to bring about a curse on someone else. Perjury. This would be lying under oath, deceiving, uh, something we don't want to do. Uh, unnecessary oaths. This is like Christ uh, when he gives the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he talks about the games that, that the Jewish people are playing. I'm going to swear by Jerusalem. I'll swear by the altar. I'll swear by the temple. Right? So they're not swearing in the name of God, and so it becomes this lesser oath in their ethical system. And Christ is saying, stop playing that game. Either take an oath in my name and let me be judge, or don't take an oath at all. But be a people where your yes is yes and your no is no. But now there's something else that the catechism goes through. And it says, when we're silent in, in terms of horrible sins being committed, and we become bystanders. This is where uh, the catechism is reminding us that uh, we may have an obligation uh, to stand up at times when it's not always nice to stand up uh, for what is right and honorable unto the Lord uh, and not to be silent bystanders. Uh, so when you hear that, I mean, we can think of a clear, maybe extreme example where you think of uh, the Jews in Holland where people would hide the Jewish people. This is sort of living this out in the sense that I'm not going to allow these people just to be executed. I'm going to stand up and stand up for what is right. Uh, so this can be rebuke. It's understanding that we represent the true God. And so the catechism tells us then positively what we are to do. So we've heard, this is what you don't do. Now this is what we are to do. And what we are to do is to understand we use a holy name of God with reverence and all. Reverence. Uh, would be the true respect, honor, manner that shows a submission to God. Uh, so we want to make sure we understand God is God. We are his redeemed. God's a redeemer. We are those who are his servants. Going on, all. This is marveling at who God is. You know, you can think of the Psalms, marveling of the Lord's handiwork, excuse me, his redemptive purpose, how the Lord has shown his mighty hand again and again, almost like Hebrews 11, like, like we heard this morning, thinking about the catalog of God's faithfulness and how the Lord has delivered his people, sustained his people, how the Lord works through his people. And so you, you marvel at that. You think of the Exodus and how the Lord shows his mighty hand, the resurrection, how Christ has been raised from the dead, that's what the catechism's inviting us to do, to start contemplating, meditating on these concepts and thinking about the goodness of God. And why would we do this? Well, we confess him. And so we need to know the God we confess. So as we meditate on these things that God has done in redemptive history, as we walk in the power of the Spirit, as those united to him, as we confess him, we continue to confess his promises, be refreshed in his promises, be refreshed in who he is. Notice that it also reminds us to call upon him. 
It's just a reminder that we actually pray to our God. That we understand that, that our God is not some distant, abstract being. He's a personal God. He's a God who has created us. He's a God who has redeemed us. And so we call upon him. Notice then how the catechism, and I appreciate what the catechism does here, where it reminds us about the comprehensiveness of our life. We can think that, you know, on Sunday we go to church and we worship him. And that's obviously important. We're called to worship God. We, we are the redeemed. And how the catechism broadens us out in saying, praise him in everything you do. And to really think about who we are. The people who recognize we've been redeemed by the Most High God. And so everything we do, we do it to his praise and glory. To honor his name. Recognizing he is the Redeemer, we are the redeemed. He is the Master, we are those who are his slaves. We're not slaves of tyranny, as the Apostle Paul reminds us. Slaves of righteousness, who have moved to new life in our Lord and Redeemer. So now let's sort of take uh, Colossians 3 and consider what the Apostle Paul is doing here with this particular group. Going back and revisiting Colossians, it seems the Apostle Paul is interacting with sort of a, a Jewish Gnosticism or, or a pre-Gnosticism before Gnosticism becomes a true um, philosophy or an official philosophy, that it's sort of taking this Jewish identity of following particular laws and particular feasts and combining that with some spiritual mysticism or encounter. That's probably the best way to summarize what we could say is a Colossian heresy. Uh, I think F.F. F. Bruce and his commentary revisiting that does a pretty good job of, of laying this out. There's other resources, but I think he does a, a very nice job of summarizing it and also just laying out what Paul's addressing. Now, going through and taking some arg other arguments, not only from F.F. F. Bruce, but others, and sort of walking through Colossians, and, and why do we say this? Well, if you look at Colossians 2, 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And so the Apostle Paul as he's going through this exhortation, he's not just beating us up. He's not just saying, hey, you know, don't, don't fall into this stuff, knock it off. The Apostle Paul is saying, let's put our minds, our, our hearts, our orientation on the reality of who we are. We are those who are joined to the resurrected Christ. He has overcome. And so you, you can hear these individuals coming into the church talking about this this you know, program of follow this festival, follow this thing, follow this particular thing, and then the Spirit's going to come alongside and somehow you'll have this mystical encounter. The Apostle Paul is saying actually when you have faith in Christ, you already have that encounter with the true God because you're those who are brought near, uh, you're made alive, you're joined to him. And so the Apostle Paul is saying you will grow in this Christ as you're joined to him. And so it's not some arbitrary experience. 
So going through this even more, Colossians 2 verse 16 talks about the right festivals. Colossians 2 verse 16 talks about pursuing the correct food. Colossians 2 verse 17 talking about the first festivals, the new moons, and the Sabbaths that we can observe. Going on as we walk through this, Colossians 2 verse 19, uh, there's a reminder that we hold fast, knowing that it is Christ who nourishes us and keeps us alive. And so when, when Paul goes on, he also reminds us what of a particular problem we can have in 2 verse 8, where he says to them, do not let them take you captive by empty philosophy. Basically, uh, lovers of wisdom is what this means in the Greek language. So he's saying, don't be taken captive and, and misled by this empty defeat or, or this, this empty flattering speech. It's something that ultimately is, is defeating you in your Christian life. Uh, he goes on to speak about the reality of how Christ in Colossians 2 verse 11 and 12 is the one who was cut off by God. And so he's the one who's been cut off by the Father, goes through the, the pit of hell, if you will, or into the belly of the sea, Sheol, and emerges triumphant in his baptism, the assurance of what has happened. It is the Lord who has done this. This is the assurance that we have been raised, we have new life in him. And so the Apostle Paul, just going through a little bit of this, there's certainly um, more argumentation you can develop, but just going through this, you're getting a sense that, yes, there's a group of people that have come into the church and said, follow this Judaistic way of understanding. You will encounter some sort of mystical, spiritual uh, experience. And as you have this experience, you can turn to these other spiritual powers. But the Apostle Paul wants us to understand that in terms of who we are in Christ, we have life. And as we have life, we are those who are secured in him. In fact, even as the Apostle Paul uses the language of mystery in terms of his writing, and when he speaks of mystery, he's not speaking of something that is unknown, something that's ethereal, something that's, that's up in the spiritual realm. When he uses mystery in Colossians and Ephesians, and he's telling us to walk in this, it's where you don't know how the Lord is going to manifest himself, and then you see how the Lord is going to manifest himself. Uh, that he is the one who, who shows his power, shows his might, and Christ is a means of that redemption. And so as Paul writes this, he wants us to understand what Christ has done. Our victory is secured right now in the Lord's plan of redemption in Christ Jesus. So going on then, and skipping down to 3 verse 17, which is what our catechism cites, as we sort of put this all in the context of Colossians. <clears throat> the reminder here is what the Apostle Paul tells us to do. Whatever we do, uh, this is a way of saying, and, and whatever we practice, whether it's what we speak, what we do, or, or what we act out. And so this, this practicing is a consciousness that we practice our lives before the face of God. So it's not just done in the context of worship. The Apostle Paul is being very, very general. Everything we do, everything we practice, 
Everything we, con- we, we consciously uh, live out, he's saying we need to live out before the face of God and the power of the Holy Spirit as those who are joined to Christ. And so the Apostle Paul, when he's saying this, whatever you do, however you conduct yourself, conduct yourself as one who has been redeemed. Now as Paul uh, exhorts uh, the Corinthians, it's very similar to what he says to the people in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, uh, that whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's basically what, what Paul's getting at here. That as you live your life, live it to the glory of God. Believe you're redeemed. Believe you're joined to Christ and walk in him. Now when he says word and deed, uh, this is basically that our words that we speak bring glory to Christ. And so this, this is a consciousness that what we do, what we say, we want to bring glory to our Christ. Uh, in terms of our deeds, this is just the actions, uh, the outward actions. So basically, our internal actions or, or, or our words that come out, how we conduct ourselves all in light of this and inclusive of this. But notice how we do this and why this is relevant, how this fits with this third commandment. We do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So in the name of Lord Jesus, there's no getting around the technicality. This consciousness and the consciousness we're called to have by the Apostle Paul, as we understand the name of Jesus Christ, is placed upon us. This is who has claimed us. This is who we are set apart in Christ Jesus, seated with him in the heavenly places. All the spiritual powers that that you hear up to this point take a seat to Christ. He is triumphant over them all. So the Apostle Paul is saying, really, the, the only thing, now this isn't easy for us to do, obviously, but the only thing we're called to consciously do is to ask ourselves, how do I please Christ more consistently? That's really what the Apostle Paul is saying. We look within ourselves, we know we're seated in Christ, say, okay, how do I bring more glory to my Lord? It's not saying everybody has to be a minister. It's not saying everybody has to be in ministry. It's as we live our lives before the world. How do we bring more glory to Christ? But notice when he also tells us, not only in the name of Christ and who we are, in terms of having this assurance that he's a manifestation of God's redemptive plan, uh, we give thanks. Giving thanks. I mean, we, we sort of talked about this this morning. And this is something that, I don't know, just thinking about this and, and meditating on, on that concept, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When you think about Isaiah, you know, I, I, I go back there and just, you know, you, you read that history and what it must have been like to hear people hackling, sawing at a tree, giving thanks to God. The Apostle Paul, being one who's in prison, not knowing his his fate, giving thanks to God. You think of Stephen being stoned, people laughing, the Apostle Paul celebrating that, giving thanks to God. And so the Apostle Paul is not saying this is easy. And there's a reason this comes in verse 17, that he wants us to have a consciousness that our victory really is secured in Christ. And when you understand your victory is secured in Christ, the name of God has been placed upon you, 
you start understanding what it means to give thanks. Because you know your identity is not in yourself. You know your identity is in Christ. And as your identity is in Christ, no matter how much you struggle, no, no matter uh, how much redemption you think you need or, or whatever it may be, you continue to contemplate the reality of who you are. I am one who does not deserve heaven, but by the grace of God, I receive heaven. I don't deserve Christ, but by the grace of God, I have Christ. And so when you start thinking and contemplating and meditating on this concept, you understand that the beauty of this. We are not those who deserve the name of God, the affection of God, the love of God, the care of God. And yet the Lord bestows this upon us freely. The years we walk under the sun, no matter whether they're years of blessing, years of struggle, a combination, different seasons, it's that reminder. Our identity, our lives are secured. The name of God has been placed upon us. That is our identity. And that's what the Apostle Paul is driving home to us. Your identity is you are set apart in the living Christ. This is who you are. So as we hear this, this bearing the name of God and the reality of this promise that we are God's people, is an important thing for us to grasp. We are God's people. And so as we walk in this, the Apostle Paul is saying, don't walk to become. Walk because of who you are. This is your status and your identity. Going on then, we look at uh, question and answer 100 of the Catechism, and we're called to live as God's people, even more consciously in putting this into context. Uh, we notice that the Catechism cites Leviticus 5 and Leviticus 24, and basically that's what the Catechism's working with very briefly. Leviticus 5 verse 1 is rather scary. For Leviticus 5 verse 1 says, If anyone sins and that he hears a public adjuration to testify, though he is a witness... Whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear this iniquity. So you hear that and you say, my goodness, this means that if we're called upon to speak up, and we don't speak up doing what's right, we bear the iniquity of what we have witnessed. It's sort of the, the force of this in the case law. Uh, but going down, when you go down to verses 10 through 17, there is a reminder and a prescription of a sacrifice that is offered. And so it's important to understand that in the context as well. And so, yes, this is a very strong exhortation for us to live out the gospel. It's not an invitation for us to test the boundaries of grace, uh, but to understand truly the redemptive work of God and his promise. Going on now, when we put uh, Colossians 3, verse 17 in its context, skipping over or down to verse 12. So notice what the Apostle Paul says here. But then as God's chosen ones. It's one of those things where, where you hear people say, you know, I don't know if this Calvinist doctrine of election is something that gives me assurance. I don't know if I can have assurance in this. I look at this and I say, well, is it just a Calvinistic doctrine? I mean, sometimes we, we get credited with this. But what is the Apostle Paul doing here? The Apostle Paul 
is saying to a church that's falling into potential Judaistic Gnosticism, if I can put it that way. You know, having this strange legalistic encounter with the living God, uh, trying to interact with different spiritual realms, and trying to figure out how to manipulate those realms. The, the, the church is struggling with this. Notice how the Apostle Paul exhorts. It's an important lesson here. Put on then as God's chosen ones. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand the basis and hope we have. It's not ourselves. It's not our goodness. It's not the things we've done. It's understanding where this begins. It begins with God. And it begins with God's merciful calling to his people. God's chosen ones. This is the identity that the Apostle Paul is saying. As you're set apart unto God, live this way. And he says, holy and beloved. So now this is basically the ones who are set apart unto God, the, the holy ones, the saints, um, the, the saints set apart unto God. I, I don't know how else to say it clearer. That's the reality. We are those set apart consciously unto the Lord as a holy and beloved. So it's important to put these words together and to see them joined together. Because not only are we set apart unto God, but we're beloved. So that's important because God's not just setting us apart and saying, okay, now live a holy life and I, I hope you measure up and you're good enough at the end and then at the end we'll, we'll sort of see how this works out. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand who God is. A merciful God, beloved, a God who has set us apart as his loved people. This isn't inviting us to be arrogant. This isn't inviting us to elitism. It's the Apostle Paul lifting us up, understanding how we have come to bear the name of Christ, as verse 17 is a conclusion of this thought. But going on then, as we are God's saints, his chosen ones, understanding this, this wonderful declaration that Paul gives to us, those who are set apart, those who are called to live out the gospel, he gives us this exhortation then as to how we live. He gives us this, this list, compassion, Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Now, when you hear this standard, these are not natural things that we do. The standard is to understand the Lord has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. We are those who have the full inheritance of heaven for the sake of Christ. This is a wonderful, beautiful thing how the name of God and how we bear his name and how it comes to us. And I love how the Apostle Paul weaves these things together. It's not just do this, but it's rather the Apostle Paul sort of pulling us back and saying, you know that Christ has overcome the spiritual realm. You know that you're set apart in Christ, right? You know that he is the one who has secured. Uh, he's the one who has secured your name and his name. So live in his confidence. Going on then, in verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Again, that reminder of being thankful. But this ruling in, in our hearts is something important. And it's something that, that we can overlook if, if we're not looking at this in the original language. And again, this isn't pulling rank, but it's, it's kind of a cool 
correlation that the Apostle Paul uh, wants us to draw here. So the same root of this word that's here in verse 15 is also found in 2 verse 18. So if your Bibles are open, you'll, you'll find there, they let no one disqualify you. So the disqualify in verse 15 of Christ ruling in your hearts is, is presented as sort of the umpire, presented as, as a judge making a ruling. So on the one hand, in 2 verse 18, you have man as a judge, right? So man saying, hey, you're not following uh, these steps of Judaism that we think are appropriate. Therefore, you're not a member of the community, is, is what's going on in 2 verse 18. But in verse 15, the Apostle Paul isn't saying the Christian life is a free-for-all. We have grace in Christ, therefore I live any way I want. But the Apostle Paul is saying, let Christ rule over you. Now when we hear that, we say, well, what does that mean, let Christ rule over you? Isn't he sovereign? It's not up to me to make him rule over me. Well, isn't this a bit of a tension, what we have with the Apostle Paul? When he recounts his conversion. And I think when the Apostle Paul says this in verse 15, he's singing back to his conversion. Now, it's not uh, in his initial conversion, as Luke tells it, but when Paul himself recounts what God says to him. And if we remember in Acts 26, 14, and Paul recounts his conversion, the Lord says, Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? In other words, right there, the Apostle Paul is saying, I knew something changed within me, but I didn't want it to be true. In other words, the Apostle Paul seems to be confessing in Acts 26, I knew Christ was the Christ, but I didn't want it to be true. So I overreacted. I wanted to persecute the church. I wanted to destroy the church. And so when the Apostle Paul has a more aggressive interaction with the Lord, the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, you don't want God to bring you to that place. It's not fun. And so it's better to give yourself over to the Spirit than to have the Lord take a bat to your head is another way of saying this. And that's what the Apostle Paul is basically recounting in the kicking against the goats. The Lord had to kick me and kick me like a stubborn animal until I finally did what I was supposed to do. And so you see there the Apostle Paul when he's saying, let the word of Christ or let Christ and the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. He's saying, give yourself over to the Lord. Give in to him. It's a much easier and enjoyable life it's a lot easier to just give yourself over to a sovereign rule and say, you are God, I am a creature. You are the redeemer. I am the one who needs to be redeemed. Grant me the wisdom to live out the gospel. I think, again, I know I kind of make this my shtick, but I think that's where Psalm 119 becomes so helpful in instructing us how to pray. Lord, keep me on the path of righteousness. Lord, teach me your ways. Lord, instruct me. It's understanding who we are. A stubborn people who don't always give ourselves over to the Lord as we ought. And so when the Apostle Paul is saying this, he wants us to pause, think about it, and recognize who we are. We are those who are chosen by God, set apart as his holy and beloved ones. Let Christ rule over you. Give yourself over to him. Your life will be far better. And so when the Apostle Paul is reminding us of this, he's saying, yes, we are indwelt by Christ, we walk in Christ, 
We live in Christ. Now, when we go on in verse 16, uh, this is one of those controversial verses uh, where we look at verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That part's not controversial. At least I hope not. But the place where it becomes controversial is where it says singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So what some people do with this, very briefly, I didn't want to make the whole focus of the sermon on this. But what some people do is they take psalms and hymns as saying psalms are the literal psalms in the Psalter. Hymns would be the title of the psalms. It basically just means uh, praises or a way of saying psalms as the hymns of God that he has given us, and spiritual songs would be inspired songs. So what people do uh, with this verse in terms of how we live out the gospel, uh, conduct yourselves in worship, is we only sing either psalms or inspired hymns of God. Now, if you notice, I didn't pick all psalms this evening, uh, so I'm not someone that would be called an exclusive psalmist. And the reason for that is as I look at this, when you put this verse into context, which is what I was laboring to do, what is the Apostle Paul calling us to do? To walk in the Spirit. To discern right and wrong in the Spirit. To exercise wisdom in the Spirit. And so, yes, singing psalms, I love the psalms. I, I enjoy singing them. So I'm not going to say we don't want to sing them. That, that's wrong, obviously, I, I don't think that's an appropriate response. But I think what this is inviting us to do is to sing songs that we discern in the Spirit that are consistent with the Word of God. That's consistent with the whole context here. Uh, it's walking in the wisdom and power of the Spirit, discerning what is pleasing unto God, wanting to uh, honor His name as His redeemed, and so when we write our songs, one of the things we say with our hymns, just because it's here, it needs to be addressed. But one of the things we say about our hymns is we want our hymns to represent what the Psalms say. So we want to follow the pattern of it. We want to learn from what the Lord has given us. But we can still write our own songs as they are consistent theology with the Word of God. So this makes sense then in verse 17 that whatever we do in word and deeds, whatever we do in our actions, whatever we do in our words, as we are informed by the Holy Spirit, we speak words that glorify God. And why? Because his name has been placed upon us. We are those redeemed in Christ and bear the name of the Most High God. And so, as we live this out then, what does it truly mean to bear the Lord's name? Well, it means, in conclusion, that we consciously understand that we're not living for self. Uh, this is a struggle for us as fallen creatures. Isn't this the very thing that Satan holds out to Adam? You can be God. You can decide what's right and wrong. You don't need to bring glory to his name. Elevate your name. You show God who's boss. And so that's the very thing that Satan's holding out to Adam. As a reminder for us, Christ has overcome. Our inclination is a kick against the goads. And the Apostle Paul is saying kicking against the goads does not lead to a happy life. It doesn't lead to thankfulness. It doesn't lead to contentment. 
And if we're honest with the irrationality of sin, we all do this at different aspects and areas of our life. But the reality is, as the Apostle Paul exhorts us, conform to Christ. Bear the name of Christ. Be conscious of who you are as the chosen ones of God, united to Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places, bearing the name of the Most High as his redeemed. Let us then discern what is pleasing unto our Lord. Let us discern what honors his name as we are name bearers of the Most High. Let us desire to do it with thankfulness, as the Apostle Paul says, not just out of obligation, not just out of duty, but out of thankfulness. Not something, again, that's very easy for us to do as fallen creatures. That's why I'd argue the Apostle Paul repeats it throughout this section. And as we do this in thankfulness, we need to think about who we are. We need to truly contemplate, meditate on this reality. We have been redeemed by the Most High God. An unworthy people made worthy. A people who have the privilege of bearing the name of God. May we walk in that power. May we consciously see ourselves as his redeemed. May we draw near to our God as a people who have been made alive and dwelt by his spirit, called as his temple people. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. <music>